This is Deep Dive. I'm Sui. A group of scientists recently wrapped up their expedition on Mount Chumalama, or Mount Everest, as known internationally. One of the teams set up a meteorological monitoring station at an altitude of over 8,800 meters above sea level, near the mountain peak. Chinese scientists had also set up seven other such stations on previous expeditions. All will work to collect data that could tell us what's happening with the climate at such a high altitude. Scientists are hoping that this study could tell us more about our changing climate in general. But not much attention has been given to scientific research up at that altitude, and more importantly, how to conduct such research in life-threatening conditions as faced by mountaineers. My colleague at CGTN Taoyuan recently traveled with this group of scientists onto Chumolama. I spoke with her on this once-in-a-lifetime experience and how this research could help us understand and mitigate climate change. This episode is brought to you on Monday, June 5th, also the World Environment Day. So Taoyuan, who are the scientists you went with this time and what their main tasks? So there were many, many research teams, not as many as last year, but still roughly there were about five big categories and about a dozen small teams. This is all part of STEP, which stands for the Second Tibetan Plateau Scientific Research and Expedition. The first one started back in the 1970s and lasted for decades. This second round, the current round, actually started back in 2017. And the key word for this round is change. And we've spoken with many of them, but we primarily followed this year a team of paleontologists who climbed to 6,500 meters above sea level to collect some of the world's, perhaps the world's highest pollen and spore samples. And by doing so, skipping a lot of sophisticated scientific processes in between, they ultimately want to understand the rising of the Himalayas, rising of Chomalama, and how biodiversity adapted to the changing altitudes and changing environments. And by doing so, predict how biodiversity, especially plant diversity, will adapt to future changes of our planet. So uh, where did you go this time? Because I think the routes of this kind of research and scientific expedition are different from the ones of the mountaineers. Actually, many of the interviews and filming uh, actually took place at base camp, which is about 5,200 meters above sea level. But uh, when we went up the mountain to 6,500, the route was exactly the same as that of mountaineers. In fact, we had two mountaineers as our guides to make sure that we were on the right track. And we stayed at 5,800 meter camp for one night and reached 6,500 meter camp on the second evening. In fact, there's no route at all because after the climbing season, wind would blow and rocks would fall and glaciers might melt and the route would disappear. And at the start of the next climbing season, experienced climbers and trekkers would establish new trekking trails and and climbing routes. And a summit team would actually install ropes, ladders and other essential climbing infrastructure at higher altitudes, but that's beyond me and most other untrained climbers. We mostly just climbed on rocks and boulders, which was difficult enough because of the altitude, the cold and the oxygen level. At 6,500, the oxygen level is only 45% of that of sea level. So it was quite an experience indeed. 
What kind of equipment did they take for the mission? Because we know taking a large number of equipment while mounting the world's highest peak is no easy job. Oh, for sure. It was quite easy for us this year. So our team, or the paleontology team that we followed, actually didn't need a lot of equipment. They needed a rock hammer, a spoon to scoop up the soil and snow samples, and plastic bags to bag the samples back, and that's it. Obviously, on top of that, we're going to need our sleeping bags, our ground mats, sunscreen, water, and food because obviously there's not going to be any place to stop and eat between camps. And we need a lot of portable chargers because there may or may not be electricity at the camps. We needed to make sure that our equipment, our cameras, get charged. There are generators or one of those solar panel generators. But they may or may not work at such high altitudes. And even if they do work, the mountaineers at the camps usually only turn them on for about two hours each night.、Mm-hmm. But last year, when we followed the glacier team to drill ice cores from 6500, they had to carry a lot more stuff. They needed a giant drilling tent, huge, heavy-duty electric drills. And they needed a lot of wires and other supporting equipment. So we had yaks and young, physically fit male workers to lug the equipment for us. But it was just a lot more tasking last year because you had to consider every little detail at such high altitude. And this year, and also last year, there was also a summit team made up of China's most experienced mountaineers. These are not scientists; they're mountain climbing guides, mountaineers trained by scientists to conduct research on the world's highest point. And their tasks included installing or maintaining some of the world's highest weather stations, and collecting some of the world's highest ice and snow samples. And these mountaineers had to carry up to 20 kilos of equipment on top of their personal supplies. All the way to the top of Chomolama, 8,800 meters above sea level. I mean, for me, even a water bottle becomes a bit too much at 6,500. So I can't even begin to imagine what they have to go through. In general, why do we need to study Mount Chomolama and its environment? Chomolama is high, right? It's the highest peak on Earth, and we've said again and again that the environment is harsh. So it's far away from human establishment. So it's not like Beijing, where factory or traffic pollution can cause an immediate impact on the environment. You know, this any change on Chomolama can be seen as an indicator of the change on the whole of the planet. It's a very ecologically sensitive region, but it's also important to know. That scientists are doing a lot of important work on the whole of the plateau, and Chomolama is only a small part of it. I think, to some degree, it serves as a publicity campaign because it's the world's highest peak. Everybody knows about it. People will care more about the findings on Chomolama more than they will about a lesser-known corner of the plateau. And scientists are realizing that at this point, it's not just about doing research that nobody knows or cares about. Because research alone won't change a thing, they're realizing that it's gotten to a point where they need to rally all the support from the public to bring about real changes. And a lot of these changes are actually quite heartbreaking because the plateau is the third pole, 
and like the North and the South Poles, is responding to global warming twice as fast as the global average. And the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has already warned that if the current trend continues, the worst case scenario, the plateau could lose up to two thirds of its glaciers by the end of the century. And this is a region which sustains a fifth of the world's population. It's where Asia's weather is made, is where more than 10 of its greatest rivers are born. So the melting is going to cause natural disasters like flooding, like avalanches. And these are just the direct results. Indirectly, it's going to cause water resource issues and the melting of the ice is going to release microorganisms and bacteria unseen before into the air and the rivers. So if we lose the third pole, what is going to happen to the rivers and lakes that it feeds? What is going to happen to us? And sadly, right now, there are just no answers to these issues. Describe your observation about local environment, because I heard some people would say that they can evidently witness the impact of climate change in the North Pole and South Pole regions. What about the situation on the third pole of the planet? Well, you'd have to go there over and over and over again during an extended period of time in order to see change, right? So I went there last year and this year, which obviously is far from enough for me to observe any impact of climate change. But we hear stories of the impact, a lot of stories. So for example, this lead mountaineer whose name is Jashi Pinto, he actually grew up at the foot of Chomolongma. The youngest member of the summit team is 22 years old. I'm the oldest. I'm 41. Physically, I've never been as able as the young boys, but physical ability isn't everything. I have more than two decades of experience. I make sure nothing is overlooked. So he's old enough to have seen the changes. And he told me that when he herded goats as a little boy at the foot of Chomolama, when I herded goats on the hills when I was little, I saw Chumlama was snow-capped. The base camp was covered in white. It was so clean and holy. I've climbed Chumlama for 20 years. The weather is changing. The ice is melting. The glaciers are receding. You can see with your own eyes there is no snow at the base camp anymore. So Jashi says it actually pains him to see this kind of changes and he says that he's so proud to be helping scientists to do this kind of work to understand the impact of climate change. And there's another story that I want to share with you is that we picked up a glaciologist on our way up the mountain and the paleontologist that we followed and the glaciologist were exchanging their own field of knowledge. As we walked, we saw some beautiful ice towers. And one scientist just said, I think he was trying to make a joke. And he said, so this is basically ice towers in his 80s and 90s, basically, right? And this glaciologist just laughed and said, this is an ice tower in its ICU days. And they just laughed and went away, you know? They're used to seeing this kind of changes and they don't have time to cry over it every time they see it. But for us, hearing them joke about it and, and, and seeing the melting glaciers, the ice towers for the first time, it just sticks with you. It just, it just stays in your mind. Talking about your uh, experience up and down, 
We know the local environment won't allow people to stay up there for too long. How long did this expedition last? You're absolutely right. The window for climbing Chomolongma each year only lasts for about a month every spring. So once the seasonal wind kicks in, it, the environment gets too dangerous for anyone to stay in the region. Even during the climbing season, which is the best season of the region, right? Sometimes the gales blow away tents, or it may snow too heavy to do anything. And that's just at base camp. The summit team on top of the mountain only has about a one-hour window to maintain the weather station and to collect the samples because it's just too harsh up there. The oxygen level is only 20-something. I think 27 percent of sea level norms, and the temperature is well below minus 30 degrees. So yeah, it's a very challenging environment indeed. After all this, did the scientists get all they wanted? I think. The easy answer is that mostly that they did, but、um, I don't think you ever get to get everything you want in that environment. I mean, we don't get everything we want as reporters. We don't get all the footage that we need. We don't get all the interviews that we need because it's just too dangerous and too challenging to film and to interview. And I think in that environment, it's. All about learning to make do, you know, to accept the fact that there's always going to be things that you don't get. And in the case of the paleontology team that we followed, they wanted pollen and spore samples all the way from the top, 8,800 meters above sea level. But the samples that the mountaineers took down from the top just weren't enough for every scientist. So they were quite happy with samples just from 6,500. Which was a record high already in their field, and I think this is what scientific research on the Tibetan Plateau is all about. It's about breaking small records once at a time and collecting even one new piece of the puzzle each time. And I think this is what's immensely admirable about these scientists is that they know that they won't get a whole lot of result each time. They put in so much. But they're not gonna get any results that shocks the world. But they're perfectly happy to be just that one small piece of the puzzle, to be that just one small step along the way, and they're perfectly okay to work in generations to gain, you know, the smallest pieces of knowledge about the plateau, about our planet. How are they going to utilize the data and samples they took back from there? So I'm more familiar with、uh, ice cores and pollen because these are the topics that I followed last year and this year. Ice cores are basically cylindrical blocks of ice that scientists drill from inside the glaciers. So basically, each years of snow accumulate on top of each other, and they compresses into layers of ice under its own weight. It's like a series of tree rings, right? And each layer is different in texture and chemical makeup, and each layer traps tiny pockets of corresponding air from ancient times. So this will allow scientists to study the climate, the pollution, the atmosphere temperature, and so on of the corresponding year, and eventually they will be able to reconstruct ancient climate. And ice cores have indeed already revealed a lot about the relationship between global warming and the industrial revolution and human activity, and they have sent us a strong, alarming message. 
about greenhouse gases. And in the case of pollen and spores, which is my main area of focus this year, these are reproductive substances of plants, right? And scientists basically want to find out how plants spread their reproductive substances at different locations and different altitudes and different climate patterns and to find out how plants adapt to changing environments and what's the threshold at which they just stopped adapting. So this is really crucial in predicting how plant diversity is going to evolve in this current round of global warming and how humans should prepare for it. And there were also teams of scientists who measured carbon levels in the air and in the water to help China meet its carbon neutrality targets. And also glaciologists who took drone footage of glaciers to track the melting and the various AWS uh, automated weather stations at different altitudes will collect supporting data for this kind of research. So once again, it's a multidisciplinary study and there's collaboration, there's competition and each team collecting that small piece of the puzzle to fill a bigger picture. So looking back, tell us the challenges those scientists faced, because I think it could be more than the physical challenges when we talk about working, living and doing research on Hap Plateau. Yes, you have to experience it firsthand. And I think it's quite hard to draw a line between the physical challenges and other kind of challenges in that kind of harsh environment. A big part of it is obviously physical. There's no doubt about it. The, the altitude, the cold, the wind, the oxygen levels, the climbing. Uh, we talked about these before. Nobody is fully comfortable. I mean, the crevasses, which are basically huge cracks in the ice that are invisible under the thick covers of snow, which can kill people. And I think all these add to the mental challenge. You move slower, you think slower, you overlook things, knowing that you can't overlook things because too many things go wrong already. I think another big part of the challenge is dealing with your mental pressure, knowing that things can go wrong. You know, equipment doesn't work properly for no reason. Helicopters can't land. Tents get blown away. You feel too sick to do anything. You catch a cold and have to abort the mission completely. Your teammate gets severe altitude sickness and, and needs an emergency rescue mission. I think it's fair to say that lives are what's at stake in that environment. And, and human lives and safety is always the priority. And these scientists have to deal with this kind of physical and mental challenge day in and day out, really. It just makes me realize, I mean, personally, but I also want to send this message to our listeners as well, that they're doing their part of the job, but we also have a role to play as ordinary people in combating climate change and the loss of biodiversity on our planet. As Taoyuan said, scientific research alone cannot deal with extreme weathers, food crisis or other impacts brought along by climate change. We also need actions such as law enforcement or coordination of authorities. For example, a new law on the protection of the Qinghai Xizang Plateau would take effect this September, prioritizing biodiversity conservation. There's also a national park on a plateau that protects the source of the Yangtze, Yellow and Lanzang rivers. Human activities such as tourism and expeditions are strictly restricted and even banned in certain areas in a park.
The administration of the park stayed somewhat independent of the local government, but was formed with personnel from different authorities working in environment, forestry, and others. Oh no, it also comes down to the actions of every one of us, you and me. Starting with the little things in life, such as cutting down our usage of plastics, travel green, and be cautious with every drop of water we use. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Deep Dive. If you like what I just heard, don't forget to follow us on your podcast platform. Just search for Deep Dive. You can also leave comments to tell us what you want to know about China and beyond. This episode is brought to you by me, Sui, and my colleagues Fei Fei and Zhang Zhang. Special thanks to CGTN reporter Tao Yuan. I will see you in the next one.